This episode has epic landscapes, big emotions, and monsters, says Chris, smiling. I don't know what else you could want from television. It could have been slightly better. That's all this year is boring. You don't even have to watch it in order. That's all this year is boring. You don't even have to watch it in order. That's all this year is boring. You don't even have to watch it in order. Punjab or Rosa? <laughs> demons. Yeah, Mitchell, demons. Okay. Um, would you say you preferred it by a lot or by a little? A huge amount. Um, I'd say not so huge amount. A little for me. I'm probably more towards Neo's end than Storm's end. I did, I did prefer it to Rosa as well. What did you guys think it did better than Rosa? Uh, I much preferred uh, Demon's take on history. Uh, and uh, how it should be presented on Doctor Who. Uh, not it's uh, it's not about famous person, but rather uh, about people surviving or just living in a historical period. It's much more natural, much more uh, much more honest, I think. Yeah, I really agree. It was much more low key. Uh, I felt so much more interesting and grounded that it wasn't just like showing off a historical figure. It was just telling a story set in history and I really liked as well that it didn't buy into the the ideology of the villain like Rosa did like Manish was clearly uh going down the wrong path here the doctor wasn't implicitly endorsing him like she did with Crasco something else I thought was different is that while there's a similar kind of resolution with the doctor just allowing history to go on and allowing something sort of quite bad to happen so that the future can be preserved in this case they made a good point for why she had to do it because you know you know to, to keep yaz's timeline intact and all of that they didn't really talk about that in rosa which i felt was missing slightly so in this case because they worked with the logic of time travel you know, a lot more. I think it was all a bit more coherent. So I, I did, I'm agree with you guys. I liked how it, uh, how it presented history and how it looked at the little people rather than kind of obsessed over the celebrity. Um, so like, would this have been better as a pure historical or no? No, I've already been angry about seeing this point expressed elsewhere. The, the Jarians are so central to what the episode is doing with the problematic nature of assumptions and in trying to fit other people's stories into your contexts and about remembrance and about paying witness to people. The Thurjarians are such an important, they're not even a counterpoint. They're like a whole central thing for the episode to revolve its story around. I I get that the, the Indian Pakistan stuff is strong enough that you could have done an episode just about it. But I think the specific story Vinay was telling needed the Thurjarians. Yeah, I agree. I have nothing to raise, really. Great points. What I thought is that, um, even though this wasn't a pure historical, 
like you said, Nia, the, the story, the historical story was strong enough that it, it almost could be one, couldn't it? I mean, I'm not saying it should have been one, but it feels like it gets the same payoff as a pure historical would, particularly in that big ending scene where the aliens are like, they're incidental, they're just a side note. And the real story is what's happening just with the historical characters and the humans. So I thought that was a nice compromise, I think. I think maybe maybe we don't necessarily need pure historicals if they can do non-pure historicals in this way to get that quite sort of that same sort of good historical story going. So I was quite happy with that. As I read the ep, uh, at any rate, the, the whole point of what it was doing was uh, exactly what you just said, that the aliens are sidelined in the third act, that... At the end of the second act, we understand what kind of story is being told here and why we should let the story be told on its own terms. Like, I, if you, if what I noticed this when I was rewatching it and actually looking out for this, that there's countless times where characters keep saying their assumptions first and getting another person's story wrong because of this. From the start, where Yaz is contextualizing her nan as saying, "Your life's our heritage." Or when Umbreen is trying to, in offering the food to Manish, make him part of her wedding narrative. Or the Doctor misinterpreting what the Thajarians is. Like, the episode is constantly banging on this point of people getting stories wrong by trying to put their assumptions and making other people like the NPCs of, the, of their own stories. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I think that when it stops being a Doctor Who episode in a way, like two thirds through and it becomes its own kind of standalone uh, little m movie of TV episode. I feel like that's exactly what Vinay was trying to do, or at least what I appreciated about what the episode was doing. I love that feeling when it stops being, you know, Doctor Who, scare quotes, and starts being its own thing. I feel like that's when it's the most Doctor Who, paradoxically. When it's, when it's able to just do its own thing, I feel like that's when it's being the most true to sort of Doctor Who. I don't know if you agree with that. Yeah, I the greatness of Doctor Who, I think most longtime fans would on some several levels say is change or being able to host a lot of different kind of stories. So I think a Doctor Who episode being able to shake off being Doctor Who-y and tell its own new kind of story, there's nothing more Doctor Who than that. Yeah, I get what that means even though it sounds contradictory that's why it really shits me whenever that anon in the threads like oh this episode wasn't doctor who like of course it was fucking doctor who that's <laughs> stupid so um since vinay you know saved the kino and everything how is vinay's approach different from jibnall's do you think because i thought the way he approached the main characters was quite different to how we've uh, had it in the first five episodes like um for one thing um, the way the Doctor's characterised, I noticed throughout this episode, the Doctor says one thing, but then gives in to her temptation, almost. So she's allowed to be a bit hypocritical because she's pursuing, you know, her her interests and her obligations. So she's like, we won't interfere. And then she just keeps interfering kind of more and more. And the companions kind of call her out on that. And then, um, yeah, yeah. So what did you guys think, were, you, were there other differences you'd noticed with the main characters in this episode? Also, something else I spotted was that um, towards the end, um, the Doctor's like, okay, we have to leave now. But Yaz and the and Ryan and Graham kind of unite against her and they're like, no, we're going to stay. Like That's something that, you know, we, that's nothing remotely like what we got in the past five episodes. I feel like Vinay has unlocked like a, another level of how to do the main four cast members that than Chibnall has, and I thought that worked massively in the episode's favour. I will say, this is the only episode I really enjoyed Graham. 
I can't decide how much of that was Vinay doing his characterization better and how much it was that Graham's two big scenes were so uh, central to the episode's themes. The one where he's emphasizing mindfulness to Yaz and about uh, taking moments as they come and not trying to contextualize things or push them into your understanding, which obviously uh, is melding with everything about the Thijarians and the partition and his scene about uh, morality with Prem, where he's emphasizing just being a good man, uh, remaining good yourself rather than trying to uh, judge others the way Prem is criticizing everyone around him for doing. So I'm not sure how much of that is born of Graham's character specifically that Vinay is nailing and how much is just that these were the scenes where Vinay kind of crystallized the themes, but for those reasons, Graham worked for me where he hasn't really worked for me in the past episodes where he, he's felt so awkwardly moralizing with Ryan. Maybe it was just that he wasn't moralizing to Ryan, that it was to a different character, that it worked. Yeah, I noticed the whole Graham-Ryan thing was completely forgotten about this episode, which was a bit refreshing. I did like that Graham and Yaz conversation and the stuff that Graham was espousing there when he was like, we never know the full truth of our own lives. And, you know, anyone can have secrets even from their grandchildren. I thought you know, it was a bit not black pilled, but I thought it was red pilled. <laughs> I, I enjoyed that. Uh, do you think that uh, his monologue about secrets is foreshadowing? Maybe he has a secret which will be revealed in the final. Like he still has a cancer and he will die or something. Oh, that's that's really interesting. I hadn't thought of it uh, about Graham himself. Because I guess he is a grandparent, like he was saying. Yeah, he would have his own it. secrets. <laughs> if, if, But if he talked about the cancer, <laughs> does he have something <laughs> even more secret than that? Maybe it's like in the last episode where that space lady said she had one disease, but then she actually had another disease. That huh. Graham doesn't actually have cancer. <laughs> he's got some other terrible disease. I did get the sense that he was making that comment about being a grandparent, because something to do with himself. I did, but I didn't think that it might be foreshadowing. So that's quite a good catch. I didn't think of that. Also, something else regarding that Graham and Yaz conversation. Um, he says to Yaz during it, he, he starts doing that whole... Patrick Troughton to Victoria thing about how, you know, no one in the universe can do what we're doing. You know, we're back in time. Isn't that amazing? And I thought that um, that read a little oddly because as far as this point in the series, there hasn't been much of a sense of the companions being in awe at what they're doing and being amazed. I thought this was the first time that any of the scripts have really tried to emphasize that wonder. And I thought considering on how many adventures they've had that we've skipped that have been off screen, and the fact that this is the, they've already you know been into the past earlier on in the series, I felt like it was a kind of a weird moment to do that. What did you guys think? Yeah. Okay. Uh, a little bit of that was in Rosa. Uh, that scene when uh, Ryan is uh, with Rosa Parks and uh, Martin Luther King. I think uh, that feeling you described happened before, but it wasn't uh, as emphasized as in this episode. Uh, and like Ryan to Robertson as well in episode four uh what was this again <laughs> when he was really wowed by oh yeah uh, uh, i guess uh, you don't okay. need a time machine to have seen him but still <laughs> but they didn't use a time machine at all in that episode do they <laughs> yes so well actually they do when they come home but that's it it doesn't really depend on the doctor but still it was showing some awe. uh as for the victoriariness of the conversation i think um it worked perfectly well in the context of the episode uh, especially when Graham, and when so much of it was about you know taking stories on their own terms and uh, living in the moment. Did did you catch um, like 
everything you're saying applies to the stopwatch as a symbol as well. Like of that broken little moment where Umbreen and Prem were happily married. And then the Thajarians pay witness to like these fleeting moments of like forgotten uh, life and stuff like that. I, 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 I love the coherence of this script, how everything sits in relation to each other. Uh, you know what I mean? I'm getting off track here, but it's just so not like the last five scripts. You know what I mean? <laughs> mm. Yeah. But yeah, in the context of the series, uh, the awe uh, hasn't been played as much. So I guess that was a bit weird. It's not this episode's fault that it's better. <laughs> so I'm not going to hold that against it. Um, still on the vague area of characters, something that I noticed about um, that related to what I said about the Doctor before, I thought it reminded a bit. It reminded me a bit of Moffat's version of the Doctor. Because occasionally when Moffat wrote the Doctor, he'd have moments where he'd say one thing and then reveal you know, his inner hypocrisy on that. It was as early as The Beast Below. The Doctor's like, oh, I never get involved, then immediately gets involved. Or, you know, Twelve in Thin Ice is like, oh, we're going to be calm and reasonable and then punches the guy in the face. So I thought um, Vinay doing that with 13 in this episode, kind of having her ardently say she's not going to interfere and then just completely going in on that. It seems to be kind of leaning a bit back towards Moffat's Doctor, in my opinion. Do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? Yeah, uh, I, I, I definitely see that. I think this episode was a lot more self-aware of 13's issues in that way of being hypocritical. Uh, I can definitely see that. And of course, her being judgmental is the linchpin to how the whole twist worked. So yeah, Vinay definitely seemed more self-aware about 13's character's flaws, which is interesting when we consider whatever the writer's room is or isn't, uh, what he might have contributed to the conception of the character. Uh, I still suspect that Chibdul did minor rewrites on every script. That's what my impression of interviews and other stuff. Were there any lines in this episode you guys thought would like definite Chibnall rewrites. Love is a uh, form of hope. Gotta be. Yeah. Did you spot any other ones? Yeah, so that's the same speech as Love Abides, isn't it? The wedding speech. It's the wedding speech, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that one. Uh, some of her other comments, I can't decide if it's just Vinay writing, like how who 13 is, or if it was Chibnall specifically, like um, the biscuit one, uh, the Einstein wedding one. The points one as well, since that was a direct reference to last week's episode. That, that's a good point. I did notice those things with 13's dialogue. Do you think uh, the Doctor has to have at least one uh, historical figure mentioned to make it... Well, <laughs> is that like a rule that Chibnall is instituting? To be in light of script, you have to insert historical figure reference. It's like how the BBC say you need a monster every episode. Chibnall says you need a celebrity and hope, every uh, episode. Hope. The word hope in the script. <laughs> yeah. There's a hope quota for every episode. Well, it was quite impressive how they managed to work that in to the wedding speech. Even even that's <laughs> about hope now. <laughs> I, I read, uh, apparently uh, I think it's Prem oh, what, what is, there's, some, there's a Hindi translation of a word that made the wedding speech cleverer than it sounded it's either prem is hindi for love or maybe the other way around but so when she's yeah prem is apparently hindi for love that's right so when she says love abides you could kind of take it as working into the thajarian witnessing prem's death as like prem abides 
I read this on another forum I won't name in the comments, but I thought that was interesting. It was Reyes. What did you guys think of just that speech in general? Do you think it was like well written, well well performed? Was it a good moment? Uh, I loved that moment, not because of the speech, but because of something very almost antithetical to the speech uh, in that the rope 13 was using in that wedding ceremony to tie uh, Prem and Umbreen's hands together and officiate the wedding was of course the same rope that Manish was putting up to mark the partition between India and Pakistan but nowhere in the app is this addressed in dialogue uh, it's understated and a big deal isn't made about it uh, which I imagine obviously is a very Vinay thing to do and then the speech is very on the nose about the themes of the series so interesting contrast there I love the moments but the speech wasn't what I loved about it. On the subject of uh, things that aren't kind of told explicitly, but that you can notice something else, and we can get back to this in a second, but I did like that tiny moment where um, they ask Prem like where he's seen them before, and he just, for two seconds, has a very brief war flashback, but doesn't say anything about it. That was, well, that was, a, thing, that was a good contrast to how so often in this series they've just told you everything in words. You know, there is one thing I do actually dislike about the episode, like, mm -hmm. all jokes aside. <laughs> It's, I've been trying very hard to come up with a headcanon or reconciliation for it because it's bugging me that I can't think of a way it's not a problem or an oversight. And that's, we get multiple characters investigate the holy man's body after he dies. How come none of them comment on the bullet wound? See, the doctor uses her sonic to scan his body and that doesn't show up the bullet wound either. <laughs> Yeah, and then multiple characters literally look over him. <laughs> no one seems to notice a hole in his body and clothes. I think it's just a real plot hole. Don't think about it very much. Yeah, a real hole for sure. <laughs> I feel like they could have addressed that fairly easily. And just have them have them work out that he was shot, but assume the alien shot him. Not that difficult, you know? Or that Prem missed when he tried to shoot the Thajarians that were standing over him or something. Yeah. Oh god, that <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> that might uh, change the course of the episode slightly. <laughs> Speaking of guns, oh my god, I loved that 13 did not complain about Prem holding a gun. So glad. That really hit me on a rewatch. She just lets him like <laughs> carry the gun around. I was like, yes! I hadn't even thought of that, but you're right. She didn't talk about her hatred of guns at all to him that's so relieving he feels more mature like you know okay you know she she can she can walk around with a character who we like who has a gun and you know it doesn't have to be a big deal you know even when manish had a gun did she even say anything specifically anti-gun to him or was it just anti don't go shoot your brother no i don't, I don't think, think so no she, she didn't although the gun was pointed at her <laughs> so it's like guns are bad dude <laughs> but that wouldn't quite have worked i love that that reveal of him uh, essentially being the monster of the episode wasn't telegraphed like when the Thajarian said we can show you when she realized that she didn't actually know who killed the holy man it didn't cut to that scene of her confronting Manish mm. and it didn't cut to another character uh, working this out it cut to what was going on with uh, Yaz over at the house at the time and then it was like three more scenes until we got that resolved I liked how uh like the episode kept proceeding on its own terms it didn't telegraph that twist to us like too directly if that makes sense 
I thought in general the episode did a really good job of keeping you into suspense, like waiting to find out what would happen. Like on the first watch, I was just completely glued to the screen for the, pretty much the whole second half. Which is amazing because we basically know everything that happens from the start. Like we know that mm. that's not Yaz's grandfather. We know what happens as far as the petition goes. But it's just that these characters are well written enough and the small stakes are sketched well enough that we get super invested into it. I like that essentially Yaz works out the whole plot nine minutes in. She's like, oh, what? So my, my nanny had a secret first Hindu husband. And that's exactly what was, what's happened. But it was because make, the app makes us care about what the specifics are. of like What happened? Why didn't she marry him? Well, she did obviously marry him. Why didn't she stay married to him? And how did he die? Because those questions are really interesting. I, I love, again, this is just the fact that Vinay's a good writer. So he can write in fractals like any writer worth his salt. But... Stuff like how 13 specifically mentions her faith in the wedding speech and then the Thajarians, what they're doing, can definitely be taken as a sort of religious act as well of witness and how that ties back into the Hindu-Muslim-Sikh uh, arbitrary division that Prem is getting verged about. Like, I just love how everything layers on top of itself here. Like, Vinay makes all the scripts reference itself at once like every little aspect of it reflects the bigger aspects of it so the, the like the through lines of what he was writing just carry through so well it's such a enjoy this is why i really don't agree with people saying like this is like the cool drink of water after a desert of five bad episodes and that like in a great series people wouldn't have commented on this episode much i really disagree this feels so like painstakingly drafted over and over with how layered and thought through it is. I, I really think this is an excellent script, not just because it comes after five not so great ones. Okay, so, um, well, moving maybe onto something else again. What did you guys think of the music in this episode? Mm, I think it was the strongest uh, Sagan episode. Mm. How do you pronounce his name? Sagan? Sagan? Uh, I... Yeah, uh, Sagan, I think. Uh, I, don't, I, I don't know. Yeah. I, I thought it might be Segan, but I, I don't know. Segan. Yeah. Segan. Segan. Okay. Uh, it was the strongest episode in terms of music, I think. Uh, out of all series, I think it likes music in episodes 1, 3, and uh, 6 in general. I, I, I can't I was... remember anything from episode 2 at all. Uh, not a single. <laughs> musical cue no, nothing it's uh, empty for me but uh, this episode was great indian in, uh, inspired action theme when they were running uh, in the forest was great of course doctor who theme rendition and then it was fantastic mm. absolutely fantastic <laughs> that was amazing that was so brilliant i was so embarrassed because i didn't i didn't realize that was what it was on my first watch i just thought ah oh, music over end credits bad <laughs> read it was only like when someone pointed out to me, I was like, oh, oh shit, that's actually really good. <laughs> I thought Sagan really, um, he took the opportunity of kind of a, a historical set in the country, which has some very distinct musical traditions and just lent into that. And yeah, but it paid off really well. I, f I feel like that theme at the end is like the ending of the episode even more than Yaz's conversation with her nan. It's like, it's such a thesis point of the episode of Doctor Who bending itself to, you know, this new writer telling a new story of his own experiences. Like, it's the perfect little cherry on top at the end of the episode is that 
we, we don't get the standard theme played. We get the show changing to accommodate, you know, a new voice and a new story. I, I was so happy when that theme started playing at the end. It was such a beautiful moment. Sagan, yeah, really did a great thing. I don't know who's, I wonder whose idea that actually was, whether it was Sagan's or Chibnall's or Vinay's. Whosever think, it was, it was uh, a great idea. I think it was Sagan because he posted something about that on Twitter and I think he said uh, he wanted to do a special theme for this episode. It does not strike me as a very Chibnall idea. I can, I can, I think that was Sagan's idea. I agree, I agree with that, Storm. I, I will say though, I did laugh when, you know, the theme, it's quite solemn and beautiful, was playing. And <laughs> suddenly we get delivery. Delivery for the doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Something is very wrong at Kablam. <laughs> Uh, that that app's going to be interesting one way or another. Speaking of connections with the pre-existing Doctor Who stuff, I really hate myself for this, but on the rewatch, when um, they're in the Thajarian ship and they, sh they show all the heads of all the dead people kind of floating into kind of the upper atmosphere and all those kind of ghost heads are floating around, I just thought about dimensions in time with the <laughs> severed heads. With the roundels. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. They're circling around. <laughs> <laughs> Model heart, no head. <laughs> I was like, oh, uh, isn't, yeah. this, isn't that weird that uh, the only have uh, human heads in their thing? Oh, that's an interesting point. Maybe it's like a different archive. Like they put Prem's head in their human, you know, network of heads. Maybe they've got a like a, a whole Silurian head network, you know. <laughs> I, I, I hadn't thought of that. I interpreted that end bit as the heads just specifically being the ones who are dying, like, right now, where they are. In partition. Ah, yeah, in partition. Yeah, yeah. Good point, that. yes. That seemed to make more sense that thematically and for the episode being a tribute. Yes, that makes sense. Uh, can I ask a question? Yeah. Uh, what did you think of uh, Tide Giants' design in general? Oh, the design of the, of the Jorians? Uh, the visual, visual design, uh, uh, yes. I loved the Thajarian design. I liked how it looked properly demonic and kind of Eastern. And also how uh, unsettling it looked, especially in those early, uh, interestingly shot sequences. But then how when we got them characterized more and we got longer close-ups on them, like they still look repulsive, but they, look, they looked much more interesting and less threatening once we started to actually like look at them for longer and like see their weird eyes and like... They're not bearing their teeth, tusks, things. They're just like there. Like, uh, it was animalistic in a cool way, I thought. I really liked that design. I like those spikes they had on their shoulders. That was quite a nice detail. Very, yeah, I see what you mean, kind of the Eastern influence there. It felt like they had a culture. Like it wasn't just generic alien outfit. Nothing like the Stenza. Well, they, they did have teeth significantly protruding from their face, but not in a Stenza way. <laughs> teeth serious sack. Do you think there's any chance, I've seen a few people throwing this around, that we might see the Thajarians again, maybe not just in the finale as like a cameo Pandorica cold open style, but as like what the Ood were to 10, like maybe they reappear if Graham ends up dying or when 13 regen. They did say, uh, we will stand over your corpses uh, to 13. So do you think there's any chance we'll see them again? I'd like that. I mean, I, I wonder how well it would work, considering, you know, the Thajarians have only been the one-off so far, but, and con especially considering they're like, you, you, only, you, you don't even need to watch it in order, but I would like it if they did that, just for, kind of, just for getting those connections in there. I'd like that. Well, that line was quite interesting, you know, leave now or we will stand over your corpses. Like, was that a threat? Or, like, what, what did they <laughs> intend by saying that? <laughs> uh, it's cutesy in that 
like it's accurate, like that's what they do, but you can take it as a threat or not a threat. I feel like we shouldn't make them too cuddly because when they were in, when 13 was invading their ship and disrupting their work, they were legit verged. Like they were very mad about that as you would be. I feel like maybe they would resort to some kind of violence if that kept escalating. But the point was that they weren't assassinating anyone. Like they were doing good work. But if someone starts invading your house and like threatening you and stealing your stuff, I don't think it's crazy that maybe they would have gotten violent with Didn't her. Didn't the doctor literally pick up that little um, jar containing the remains of their entire civilization? Or am I misreading that? <laughs> isn't, isn't that the thing she's kind of lifted out of its container or what? Yeah, so you can't blame them for, <laughs> for maybe threatening her a little bit. I mean, she threatened them first. True. I do agree that I think the Fajarians might be the first, like, of the alien species who have appeared in Chibnall's run so far, I think the Fajarians might be the first one that kind of qualify to be on that Ood level where you can kind of see yourself wanting them to come back and kind of play a recurring role. They seem to have been pretty well received uh, from everywhere, everywhere I've seen. I mean, they are one of those aliens that like, oh, there's no threat because they weren't bad guys in the end. Oh, it wasn't scary enough. <laughs> I'm not in line with that line of thinking. There's always a threat of that with these episodes. I saw a great Twitter thread, I forget who by, but saying that if Manish had peeled off his face and revealed himself to be an <laughs> avatar of the great intelligence or something, people would have been saying, <laughs> yes, this episode had a proper Doctor Who monster. <laughs> <laughs> On the topic of the um, the Thajarians, um, what do you think of the parallels and connections between them and the testimony? Knowing Vinay, I feel like that was thought about since um, this this guy read a new series adventure, mm. you know, for background on his episode. Like, obviously, he's seen Twice Upon a Time, probably more than once. Uh, the similarities are definitely there. Like, and also with the Tesselecta and the Shansheath and stuff like that, the idea of aliens being very involved the last moments in someone's life. But... I feel like ideologically they're really different from testimony. You know, testimony is almost like a transactional thing. Like they take, they capture, they record, you know, life and they form avatars out of it that they use for their own ends, which largely seem good if unsettling, but it's still like an organization running, you know, something. Whereas the Thajarians are doing it purely selflessly in a, in a kind of religious sense, they're bearing witness to pay respect. And they, they even out, outright say to pay honor, you know, to forgotten stories and those, the unmourned. So I feel like testimonies doing it for information and like for the greater good. Whereas the Thajones are just doing it to honor people, which I feel like is a really big difference. And the Tesselector was doing it to torture people, which is obviously yeah. <laughs> much worse than either. What do you think happens when uh, all of them meet others <laughs> at that first? <laughs> yep, <laughs> there's a great story to be told there. I noticed in Andrew Ellard's Twitter thread, he compared the the Thajarians to the testimony in terms of them both having a digital afterlife, and I thought, hang on a minute, like the Thajarians don't actually have a digital afterlife, do they? Like those no, no, ghost no, no. things no, that flow no. up. They're but I, I interpreted those as just like representations rather than them actually having his soul. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, they're like. Headstones. Yeah. Yeah. Headstones. That's a good comparison. They'd be doing it to their own people if, if they could, you know, reconstruct. 
things mm. now. It's just they they outright said it's just to honor, you know, to mourn. I I, I found that genuinely touching. You know, I really really liked how that was handled, and I know. I've seen some people say this episode was moved around in the order, and I thought this myself until Storm pointed out we don't have actually any confirmation of that. So I wonder whether this episode was always intended for Remembrance Day, which strikes me as a very Chibnall move. Like he got Arachnids in the UK Halloween week, and Rosa was in Black History Month, wasn't it? Yeah, but. Uh, about that order thing, uh, I think I was wrong actually because oh really? Uh, there's a again in Sagan's Twitter there's a post where on one of the photos it says uh, 11.9, so it was intended to be episode nine, but it was moved. Oh, that's interesting. Well, I feel like it was definitely to um, capitalize on Remembrance Day. I'm sure it was for that reason. There was even a shot of poppies in the episode, and the themes obviously go so much with what Remembrance Day ideally is. This is really the ideal conception of it. This episode was about paying respect to the fallen and pointedly not trying to recontextualize other people's stories to generate motivation and fervor for your own. So it definitely was appropriate for that day. That's it. I bet Chibnall moves it up in the order, recognizing when it would air. Yeah, that's quite interesting. I really liked that it was a version of Remembrance Day that completely was devoid of any of the sort of British patriotic jingoism you might associate with that. Like, it, it was... Yeah, I, I really liked that. Yeah, it really was the ideal of what these kind of days should be. Just remembering and respect and not using people's stories, just listening to them. Yeah, it was done so well. I'm just... um, This is a bit random. Uh, on this subject of the opening scene, flashback or no flashback? Hmm, I think flashback. I completely thought flashback until someone in Thread pointed out I should look at the clothes and the clothes were the same. Which, I mean, it's entirely possible Yaz has worn the same outfit more than once, but I'm not going <laughs> to make that argument. <laughs> See, what that makes me wonder is, what's the if, if it's not a flashback, what's the timeline? going on with the with the companions and with the doctor because i feel like this this really throws it into question because we've already been skipping so much of you know the, the adventures and it's question are they actually living on the tardis or are they going back and forth from the tardis and i f- i think that lack of that's interesting that lack of clarity regarding what the arrangement is because moffat puts so much emphasis on that the the ponds moving into their home and not living on the tardis full time that was a huge shift you know, Clara made a point of, like, you know, pick me up every Wednesday, stuff like that. So the fact that we're kind of vague about it now, that seems quite interesting to me. I wonder if The Good Doctor or Molten Heart have addressed this, because, yeah, the episodes are really wishy-washy about it. Uh, I had the impression that they actually leave on the TARDIS before this episode. I was... Uh, wasn't it uh, the whole point that they want to escape uh, their lives for good? Yeah, that's the, like the, the ending of episode four was, <laughs> was literally it, about it, it that. Was, I'm so confused. Yeah. <laughs> it was two episodes ago that they said that uh, they don't want to return to their ordinary lives and uh, they want oh. time and stuff. You know what it might be? If this app was moved in the order, we might get an explanation like next week or the week after of uh. them like going back sometimes. And this app being moved around meant we hadn't got that explanation yet. Mm. That makes sense. I remember when Moffat 
uh, last moved around an episode really obviously it was the curse of the black spot from the second half of series six to the first half and night terrors in and the night terrors yeah because he had to mess around with the little arc moment of kavarian coming through like the fake window for ganger amy's bar perspective uh since that wouldn't have happened in the second half of series six but there's nothing like that in series 11 this <laughs> You know, no little Stenza reveal. There's no Stenza screaming in a TV screen in the background, <laughs> Series 4 style, to remove. I remember in Night Terrors, the Doctor's like, IN THE FLESH! Which would have been foreshadowing that Amy was a flesh ganger, of course. But of course, since that episode got moved to after that twist, it just is completely meaningless. It's, yeah, it's kind of the sort of the, the pros and the cons of moving away from that arc-based approach. You don't get weird little errors like that, at least. It just struck me, speaking of Night Terrors, that how Gators uh, originally wanted to <laughs> write a sequel to Sleep No More for Series 10 before when it, he knew it would be his last episode wanting to do Ice Warriors uh, on Mars. <laughs> if one of the hooks Chibnall had used to try to get him back was saying, mate, you can make your Sleep No More sequel in Series 11... <laughs> That would have been nice. Can you imagine how that would have gone? <laughs> <laughs> Something I thought about um, a few minutes ago and then forgot and was like agonising trying to remember so I could bring it up. Um, we were talking about how the Fajarians lost their home world and it just struck me that if this was the RTD era, the explanation for it would have been the Time War, wouldn't it? It's that, that exact kind of setup. you know, we've changed because we've lost our home in the Time War. That got, that's been used so many times in New Who. So it's kind of that again, just without the Time War as a pretext for it. That's kind of interesting. Uh, it's just Stenza now, instead of <laughs> Stenza. <laughs> Speaking of um, rituals of the Stenza, how do you guys feel about the title of the finale being um, the Battle of Ranskor Avkolos? I know this it's... is totally off topic, but we've just found it out. I need to know how you guys feel about that. It's fucking terrible. So bad. <laughs> how, do you, how do you pronounce it? How, how do you guys pronounce it? Ran, is, is it Ranskor Avkolos or Ranskor or...? Uh, Ran... <laughs> Ran... <laughs> you, you can't even pronounce it. It's, uh... Fascinating. You don't even have to say it in order. Ranskun of Colas. Maybe it's not even English. Yeah, it, it could be an entirely yeah. different tongue. Okay, moving back to Demons of the Punjab. Um, something really interesting that I thought um and that Andrew said about the episode is that it's unlike Rosa. It's more likely to send kids off to Google than to make them feel like they've already been told it all and they don't need to Google it. I'm sure I was one among very many that went to the Wikipedia page for the partition as soon as the episode ended. Like, I'm sure a huge amount of people did that. I thought that that comment he made was really on point because there's no, there's very little kind of wiki reading out in Demons. I mean, there are a few moments where one of the Indian characters like, oh, well, you know, now the, the British are doing this to the country. and But they don't, they kind of, there's, there's never a point where the characters just recap <laughs> the historical situation. Yeah, the, the closest it comes is 13, like, rushing out context quickly to Yaz, but that, like, makes sense in the episode, because Yaz mm. doesn't know that's where they are. 13, like, stumbles over herself just for two sentences, like saying, partition 1947, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. Millions get displaced. It, it feels natural because uh, she's rushing to explain a situation the companions have no idea they're in. Whereas in Rosa... They all knew who Rosa Parks was. Ryan was just a bit fuzzy exactly on what she did. And then we got the Wikipedia recap of Yaz because she did a book report or whatever. Like, it's it's a very different setup when one definitely feels a lot more natural. 
there was a massive difference between the characters kind of coming together in a cafe to recap what they know about, you know, Rosa Parks so they can interfere, and the Doctor just panicking, telling me, over a million people are about to die, and just, you know, telling the people the situation that maybe they don't know that much about. And also, it's the inevitable consequence of doing a story that's about living in history with, you know, the little people, as opposed to a story about visiting a historical event and being kind of fascinated with the specifics of that that's super well documented. It just, inherently, it's it's more open-ended this way, and it has more little rabbit holes that makes you want to... You don't get the whole story, but you get something that suggests the, the bigger story. And I really, I really like that. It's I, I, I kind of resent this series being described as Hartnell-esque for a lot of reasons, but I think the way this so avoided both the new Who historical theme park approach and also the classic Who, well, uh, Hartnell and Troughton Who approach of uh, like zeroing in on famous Western periods of history to like and again they they had they had celebrity figures as well you know uh, Marco Polo and uh, what's his name in uh, anyway the the point is that it was such a small stakes thing that yeah we didn't get any of the flaws that us that these other kinds of historicals would fall into because it was a the, the whole story was about forgotten violence and forgotten people it was such a different way to do uh, historical that i think it's more transformative than like a return to form or anything like that like i think this is a new way to be telling historicals even in the way the sci-fi elements were used like rosa is a sci-fi episode because even because there's not that much you know effects in it or anything but the story is about two time travelers fighting over the sanctity of a temporal event you know it's about crasco and the doctor fighting to make sure the timeline stays Whereas this story is about, uh, you know, a brother versus a brother and a woman and a man trying to get married. You know, like the sci-fi elements are there, but they just connect to the themes of the episode, you know, about witnessing and about assumptions and stuff like that. So it's it, 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 I don't feel like you can slot this in a historical or pure historical because what it's doing isn't really what those categories were made for. Yeah, I see what you mean there. And I, I love so much that the, in the climax of Demons, there isn't that focus like there was in Rosa on how the Doctor and Graham <laughs> feel about what's going on. Like, it, it, I mean, yeah, we see how they react and we see how they feel, but they aren't like, as prioritised as they were in Rosa. Like, Rosa's so much about, you know, the, the main characters having to witness this and, oh, God, isn't this awful that they have to sit on this bus? Whereas in Demons, like, the main story takes precedence. And maybe Yaz's reaction in particular is super important because it's her, his, it's kind of her history, and that, that's yeah, great. That, but they don't overemphasize it. The Thajarians basically tell him to fuck off at the end. You know when yeah. Prem is right about to die. Like this is, and it's not because this is a temporally sacred event or anything. It's because this is the guy dying. You know this is a sa- well, this is sacred, but not because of time travel sci-fi reason, but because this is a real guy who had a real life and he's about to die, and it deserves respect, not gawking at or you know historical theme park approach like it's uh, such a different way to tell a historical i'm so so impressed uh by how this was done loosely connected to that um, i think in this episode in general there's more of a conscious idea of the doctor and by extension the companions being powerless and the doctor kind of not having it's it's not a story where the doctor saves the day really 
Well, well at all. <laughs> but she, she doesn't. She doesn't say bidet, does she? So I think there's something quite refreshing about that. Do you, but do you think it fits into a bigger pattern of 13 being kind of less... Uh, uh, do you think it fits into a pattern of 13 being less active or do you think it doesn't? <laughs> I don't know. What do you, what do you think? Mm, I think it uh, fits very well. Uh, 13 and uh, the whole team, they feel uh, much more powerless, I guess. Uh, you're right. Uh, in the Spiders episode, they literally didn't resolve the plot because uh, they didn't know how to resolve the, resolve the plot. Uh, in the episode 2, they just survived in, in the alien planet. Uh, actually, I, I really like this approach. I think uh, it's uh, it's very new to New Who. And uh, I really want to see uh, how it develops in the future. And the inevitable big moment, like when 13 will have to save the day, will feel much more powerful in contrast with uh, all this uh, build-up where she's uh, not as powerful, I guess. And it's the only times this series that 13 has actually done that, had the big hero moment. I think the first episode where, you know, she defeats Tim Shaw and episode five with the Pating. With the other ones, it's kind of subverted. So with a ghost monument, you know, she just sort of, everyone just disappears on her and she has to wait for the TARDIS. In episode three, Rosa, they just kind of sit on the bus and don't really do anything. Obviously, like you said, episode four, they don't really do anything to the spiders. And also she lets the mother spider get killed by a Trump. Uh, and also, obviously episode six, she can't save Prem. So it's really just Saranga and Woman Who Fell to Earth that position the Doctor as this very heroic figure. I, I think as far as power goes, what I found interesting with how 13 was trying to exert control over this episode was because, like she said from the start, she wasn't going to try and change how things happened. And then the demons, the Thajarians themselves were uh, powerful and smart enough that she had trouble dealing with them. Like, we had that great moment when she was actually fucked when they got through the little transmat thing mm-hmm. she set up and teleported them on. But I thought the way she tried to assert it a power was mostly just by repeatedly trying to make it a Doctor Who story. Like, the way she kept imposing her understanding of events over everyone's mindset, like, immediately characterising the Thajarians as, you know, Doctor Who villains and trying to rally everyone up in a typical Doctor Who, you know, coming together moments and, you know, everyone get me my stuff so I can do this. Like, she kept... I mean, this is a Doctor Who episode, so she was going to do this, but Vinay was self-aware since it got subverted in the end about how it's like 13's method of coping is just to keep trying to play out these same narratives of control. Even uh, when Prem was about to go to his death, the Doctor was like, I'm going to go with you. And he's like, no, these are demons I must face alone. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That, that's one I only just noticed, but that fits into what you were saying. Okay, so we've talked a lot about, you know, why, uh, why we like this episode, what we thought was great about it. Do you think... Do you think, since we like the script, do you think there are any aspects of how it was executed that either kind of elevated it or let it down a bit? Because this was a Jamie Childs episode and we've had complaints about him before, <laughs> to say the least. So what, yeah, what do you guys think? It's He, he does it a lot. I, it, it went away a little as the episode went on, but he kept doing this same thing he did in the premiere as well, where... It astounds me because it should be the simplest thing for a director to do, you know, a shot, reverse shot, so a shot of a character's face, 
and then a shot to the character they're talking to his face and then cut back to the first character's face like this is very simple like every movie ever does does this pretty much but he lingers on the reaction a little too long it's only like three quarters of a second but it feels weird when you know we've grown up watching so many hours of movies and tv shows that pace this correctly and then like we'll we'll cut to a character a little bit before they start talking and it makes it feel weirdly rehearsed and not like they're actually communicating like this is like this is actually video clips being assembled on a timeline if they let us stay nobody cares what we do here mum india is not her home now india is a home to all of us i'm talking to cover my later worry i know i've got that now it, it, you don't really notice it when you're engrossed in an ep- episode which is why i think it was less of an issue here than the premiere because uh, here you're getting swept up by the story and characters anyway that you're more likely not to forgive but to not even notice but when you watch some of the clips in isolation yeah it's really weird uh i felt this way in the opening scene uh it's the umbrian's uh, birthday for some reason it felt very unnatural still feels somewhat unnatural after a couple of rewatches also i noticed a lot of uh, small editing problems like uh when they're in the forest they run to find the demons. Uh, 13 says uh, Thread Sophie. Uh, and in one shot, she has uh, pretty straight hair, her usual hair. And uh, literally one shot later, uh, her hair is uh, suddenly much more curly than it was one second ago. Uh, it was very obvious and it felt uh, uh, very amateurish, I think. You can see the camera in one shot as well in uh, the yeah. forest, I think it was. Speaking of the hair thing, I noticed at one point during that forest scene it was briefly raining and I wondered if maybe if it rained on like while they were shooting and that got Jodie's hair wet causing it to go curly and they couldn't like kind of shoot around it or anything like that. So in the edit there are some bits where her hair's wet and it's curly as a result and then some bits where it's dry. I feel like that, that's what happened there. They didn't come up with a good solution. What about the acting of the guests? Because that's uh, a thing that's often important <laughs> in uh, uh, various episodes. Um, I know that there are some conflicting opinions on that. Neo, I know you really like Shane Zaza's performance as Prem, right? Yeah, I've, <laughs> I've only seen Jack Graham on Twitter agree with me. I really, really, really liked... This was like when I first watched Kill the Moon uh, and I thought... Well, I still think this was an absolute masterpiece and one of the you know best episodes of the show I'd seen. And I logged off after I thought about it for a while and I talked about it uh, with someone uh, online. Uh, then I went and I read a review of it on a site that was like giving it an A plus as well. And I was like, yeah, man, it's great to have a new classic of Doctor Who. And then I went on to Who. <laughs> and I was, I was felt like I'd crossed into some parallel reality. Like I didn't understand what was happening and why people were thinking this way because it was so alien to my experience of the episode. Obviously, this was much smaller scale, but I felt like I had that with... What's his name? Shane Zaza, is it? Yeah, yeah. well, I don't yes. know how it's pronounced, but it's just Z-A-Z-A, yeah. so... Yeah, because uh, yeah, I thought it was really good. I was thinking, watching the episode, how he was exactly what I would have liked Danny in Series 8 to be. I think he was playing so many of the same beats that that character should have played, that he was actually charming and handsome and funny, and you could see how someone would fall in love with him. Like, I like that moment when he grabs Manish at the start, and he talks about his baby brother, is a nice joviality to it while he's also seeming very, uh, you know, 
rugged and everything like that. But he has that constant undercurrent of pain under him as well that he really sells, not even just in the flashback scenes, that you can just tell this is a guy who's been through a lot. And then he has, uh, uh, well, funny enough, like a very British stiff upper lip about how he tries to quell that, you know, and talk in a very measured tone to not explode about how much obviously he's verged about his older brother being dead and his younger brother, you know, becoming all alt-right effectively. Uh, good to, yeah. uh, I'll, I'll get into that later. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, I really, really, really like this performance and I thought it was doing so many things, you know, I wish this past character that I felt like was similar should have done. But other people seem to find that he was just super wooden uh, and like there being nothing more to it. So... Yeah, I accept I'm in a minority here for once. I mean, I, I'm warming to your point of view there. I do kind of... It, 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 it's not that I thought it was, like, horrible. I just... I think I kind of see why people thought he was wooden. And I also see why you really liked it as well. Um, I've, uh, I think in some cases, I think the dialogue he's given kind of... Because we're used to watching Doctor Who, where characters are a bit more melodramatic about stuff, maybe, and when you know, a character gets a line like, oh, why are they here? What's happening? We kind of expect just lots of hamming it up and kind of emoting stuff. So when whenever if a guest actor comes on, and they basically, they don't really, like, they basically just have one facial expression, then that's kind of going to make us be like, ah, what's going on? But yeah, no, I, I think we don't get sort of many characters on Doctor Who with kind of with that sort of traumatised, sort of keep repressing sort of theme. So maybe that's that's why there's such a kind of dis- disconnect there. But yeah, no, I, I, I try to like things in general, so... Um. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, feel, I feel like there's some hypocrisy in what I'm saying. Like, I really do think Azaza was doing a good job for those reasons I said, but there's one guy in the thread who really tries to die on this hill of Samuel Anderson, the man who played Danny, being some excellent actor that was doing a <laughs> super complicated, nuanced thing of... Um, what is he trying to say? He was was an introverted character. Introvert. And you only didn't like his performance (laughs) because you're extroverted. (laughs) Like, I can't disagree more. Like, I honestly think at times Samuel Anderson was accidentally selling Danny as, like, someone was some kind of legit social... Uh, how to put... Someone... (laughs) I I, I think his acting was so poor at some times, he was selling an extremely different man and character than Moffat was writing Let, let's let's say that whereas Zaza seemed to be embodying uh what the script was demanding of that character very much like it says I don't think Samuel Anderson was doing some masterclass you know Joaquin Phoenix level portrayal of an introvert this was no Ryan Gosling you know in <laughs> Drive or Blade Runner <laughs> or anything like this was a guy sniveling and stumbling out lines super awkwardly and having no chemistry with Jenna. But uh, what, what, did you think Zaza had chemistry with Umbrain's actress? Uh, the young Umbrain, not the old Umbrain? Um, thinking about it, there there weren't that many uh, scenes of them sort of being lovey with each other, or seems to like kind of demonstrate chemistry. Because like during the wedding, they basically just kind of, kind of stand there and hold hands. But um, I, I thought it, 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 it was all right on that front. I wasn't super hot on the actress who played uh, young Umbrain either to be honest i thought some of her was a bit i mean that might have been just the direction and editing again making her seem a bit stiffer than she really was uh out of uh, three side characters like 
that actor who played Punish the most, actually. I don't remember the name. It was Hamza Jitoa, I think. Manish? Uh, uh, yes. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah, he was good. I liked him. I agree about Ambrine's uh, actress. She felt uh, the most uh, un- unnecessarily comedic in, uh, in times. I don't know how to put it. Mm. She was just uh, on slightly another level with yeah. the other two. Speaking of Manish, I want to go back to how I um, joked that he was alt-right earlier. Yeah, please uh, do. <laughs> so, I mean, there's a, like, he had a line where he said, the maps were leaked weeks ago. I got one from my sources, which kind of cracked <laughs> me up on a second watch, <laughs> making me think of, you know, the spoiler hounds <laughs> on Twitter and the kind of things they say and how they put them. You know, the maps were leaked weeks ago. I got one from my sources. Is, does no one else see the comedy in this line? No. Well, I mean, <laughs> okay. Now, now you now you bring that up. It kind of it makes me think of like QAnon supporters on Twitter, <laughs> and like, oh, uh, my sources suggest that uh, yeah. Obama will be putting Guantanamo uh, on Sunday. You know, oh. That sort of thing. So it might hey, be hey, like that. He, he says everyone's waiting for the announcement, but I've got advanced information as well. But that that's not the line I really want to key onto. It's mm. when his brother is describing how he's changed. He says, you'll have to forgive him. He spends too much time reading pamphlets and listening to angry, angry men, men on, on the, the radio. radio. Yeah. If this was a Chibnall script, you know, Yaz would have said, oh, like those Americans with Alex Jones. And yeah. Ryan would have said, oh, like Paul Joseph Watson on YouTube or whatever. I really liked how Vinay just let that sit. Like it's, I, th- I find it very easy to draw, you know, the allegory to modern times with, you know, Prem had his other little speech about how um, all these flames of division and conflict were getting stoked, yeah. you know, by the British and splitting this country up. And how... Is this why I find a certain critic's take on the episode as blaming the partition, like, on the Indian masses so bizarre? Because the episode seemed quite explicit to me about uh, villainizing the British for stoking the flames at this conflict. And, like, obviously Manish was bad in what he was doing, but... He was. He seemed to me in the episode to be a symptom of these these problems going on more than like a root cause of it. If that makes sense, his his brother just kept describing him as a good man, or you know, previously a much better man, and saying how his mind had been poisoned by, you know, this rhetoric in these pamphlets and the radio. I, I thought that connected to, and you know, look at him and look how he react. Like he's he was essentially accepting to his brother getting married, you know, to a woman of a different religion. I, I, I don't think it's hard to draw parallels to, you know... Incels? Uh, cuck narratives. Yeah. <laughs> and that that kind of thing here. Yeah, the whole race traitor thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, with, with that speech Prem had about how, oh, they're making us think that what divides us is more than what unites us. Um, the way he was kind of... The way he was made to kind of come and come forward closer to the camera and stare into the middle distance with that bit, it felt very much like, this is talking to the audience. This is con- this has contemporary relevance there. And they weren't, obviously they weren't as bad with it as they could have been, which I appreciated. But that, that, that connection to kind of contemporary, you know, sort of fascism stuff like that I, f- I found that moment um quite sad in that how much a consequence of you know the dramatic irony of this being a historical was like we can pull what he's saying to modern times but just taking it in the context of him himself saying that it's so sad because he's recognizing what's going wrong and it goes wrong like nothing he's mm-hmm. saying gets fixed like that happens for a very long time and even to this day india and pakistan 
you know, conflict and divisions still has roots in, in the partition. It, to see a character being swallowed up by history in that way uh, is very sad. And it's why I found the Thijarians so affecting when it's not that they're changing anything, but just bearing witness to all these, you know, so many forgotten uh, people in this conflict. Yeah, it's, it's a sad... I can see how it's kind of mawkish uh, in getting paralleled with modern times. Although, again, Vinay didn't push that explicitly at all, even though you can read it into there. But, yeah, I, 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 it was such a sad episode in so many ways. Whereas earlier episodes that Chibnall's done feel like they're weaponizing that sadness to give us messages of hope and, you know, parallel this with something going on now. This episode mostly felt content just to say this is a sad story. Yeah, I, I don't know uh, which critic review we were referring to earlier. I think there's possibly a slight kind of hedge to be made there, which is that the episode doesn't uh, do much to acknowledge the British's divide and rule strategy, which they employed. Because um, I think in, to a certain extent, the whole kind of conflict that kind of led to the violence were somewhat stoked by the British in the first place, kind of separating the kind of the Hindus from the Muslims as a way of kind of getting kind of securing more power over all of them. But yeah, that's you can't expect Doctor Who to get everything in. So I think it, it would be a bit churlish to hold the episode up on that account. The one thing I will hold it up on, although some of this might be Jodie's delivery, uh, the Mountbatten line. Oh yeah. What would you think like, about it? Uh, it I, again, this might be Jodie misdelivering the line a bit, but it came across too, like, chummy reference to a celebrity. Like, next time I see Mount Bannon, I'll pass on your thoughts. Like, that that doesn't feel to me like the Doctor dismissing him as much as, like, the Doctor name-dropping that she knows him to me, which felt really off, to the extent that I think it was a mistake in the delivery. I mean, I think the phrasing of the line, you know, I'll, I'll make a note of your thoughts and pass it on, even something about that seems slightly patronising. I think, considering you know, this guy is talking about you know a, a great violence that's been done to you know, him and his people. Like, oh, I'm making note of your thoughts. I'll pass it on. I don't think you can. I think no matter how you deliver that line, I think you're going to be slightly in that trap there. So I'm not sure how much I blame Jodie for that one. Speaking of Jodie deliveries, um, did you guys like the timeline? Your whole timeline could be erased. It reminds me. This, well, this is a true Doctor moment. It harkens back to when McGann said we've got to get back to the Tardif. <laughs> Actually, I didn't even notice her mispronouncing timeline before it uh, until until someone pointed out. I mean, I, I didn't hear it either. It's just someone pointed out in the thread. And, you know, nothing wrong with you know Doctor kind of mixing up there. You know, I mean, Hartnell pioneered it. We've gone back to that tradition, so nothing wrong with that. I feel like Smith did it more than once as well. Possibly. Speaking of, it's slightly relevant to what we were talking about a minute ago. Rosa was Rosa kind of made a point of ending happily, even though you know the story it was telling was sad. And, you know, Rose is kind of about creating a narrative of historical progress, whereas in the case of demons, right, the, the progress almost isn't happening. Like, or, you know, it hasn't, it, it's not happening as desired. There's a point of, they don't try to make it nice in any way. Well, yeah, the it's, app it's, doesn't touch on modern India or modern Pakistan at all, which I really liked. It's, because mm. it's all small scale, it's it's kept to Yaz's fan. Well, it's, it's, it's just kept on brain, really, and Yaz reacting to it. It's not even like the intergenerational tale, like we never actually see Yaz's real grandfather or anything. Yeah, it would have, would have been so out of place to have a little, like 13 saying, well, for the next 40 years, India and Pakistan, blah, blah, blah. And today, you know, blah, 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 blah. Like that would have, <laughs> that would have been terrible. But in a hundred years, they have an asteroid named after both of them. <laughs> 
I thought on that last conversation between Yaz and the older Umbreen, where Yaz asks her, you know, are you happy with your life? And, you know, Umbreen's like, yes. I thought that was that was a nice message without being too nice because it was more about just accepting what's happened rather than trying to put the kind of a smooth on it and just taking the good with the bad. My big utopia moment from that was when uh, Umbreen kind of offers to tell the story and Yaz said no. That's when, like, the whole episode snapped into focus to me and I, like... I tacked on to what I think Vinay was telling with the story. I thought that was such a cool move. Like any other writer would have had, you know, Umbrain say, well, yes, say yes, you know, tell me and do a knowing smile and Umbrain start telling the story and end the episode there. But here Yaz had learnt from everything that it went on to, you know, respect people's claim over their own stories and not try and extract them from people and not try and get the story you expect or want, but to respect you know, the storytellers mindfully sharing the stories when they want to. I, I, th- th- that's such a not a maudlin or mawkish moral for a story. I found that so impressive. There is an interesting meta resonance there, considering Chibnall went into the job saying he wanted to tell the story of the partition of India and hired Vinay Patel, presumably for that express purpose. So <laughs> you could almost suggest that um, Umbreen gets the agency that... I don't know. I, that was. I don't know. Am I am I barking up the wrong tree here? No, no. I th- I, agency is the word I was rooting around for there. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's. Vinay, the whole episode makes a point of giving storytellers their agency instead of trying to get their stories to make yeah. part of your own. Yeah. So, in a meta sense, that's interesting to read. I I really do think Vinay likes Chibnall from everything I've read. They seem to be quite chummy with each other. But definitely, inadvertently, Demons feels like a pushback to a lot of what Series 11 has been doing. Yeah, I mean, it helps that Vinay actually, you know, he was actually interested in telling the story and he wants it, he wants to tell it and he wants it to be told. So it's not like uh, some thing like, how dare you do this? <laughs> but yeah, no, that's a, that's a good, uh, that's a good point. It's kind of commenting maybe slightly on the, on the, uh, the whole idea I've, of just delving into historicals like in that way. I've got to ask, uh, now that I think of it, so this was the first script of a new writer in New Who. How do you think this compares to other first writer scripts in New Who like uh, Kill the Moon by Peter Harness or Mummy on the Orient Express by Jamie Matheson or Face the Raven by Sarah Dollard? How do you think this ranks up to introductory episodes like that? Oh, that's kind of, that's uh, kind of a tough one. I think like to take Matheson's debut as an example, I think Matheson displayed more uh more of a an intuition of doing doctor who like sort of the the way we kind of expect it to be done whereas like i i, I just i kind of i feel bad saying necessarily that i prefer one or the other because the, their virtues are so different like i don't know like okay tell me your opinion then i'll feel less bad about mine uh i like well, i definitely like this more than face the raven um, although that's a super impressive introductory episode, like that's insane. Can you imagine any other writer pulling off a companion death for their first episode? Oh my God. And that's that's not ghost written by Moff. Those last ten minutes, like they're both quite adamant about that. There's a one or two lines which I'm sure were either her trying to be Moff or Moff writing, but like that's genuinely not like a COVID and Moff episode. That's that's a fresh writer, so it's very impressive, but uh, it has its flaws. And I don't, I don't like it as much as Demons. Mummy is really good, but it's so tied into the skeleton Moffat, no, the skeleton, the skeleton Moffat had built of Series Eight that 
I can't credit everything that works in it to Matheson, even if he did write every word of it himself, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Like, that that really depends on Kill the Moon uh, to work as it's working. Um, obviously, I like Kill the Moon much better than Demons, but yeah, I, I like Demons more than Mummy and Raven quite comfortably. Uh, I hope uh, other series level new writers will follow this path of doing something new, something that uh, something that is important to them, uh, and not just Doctor Who. Also, the next episode uh, seems very McCoy, very traditional. But I hope uh, Wishfinders and uh, what was it takes you away. Yeah, mm. I, I hope it's uh, as far from traditional Doctor Who as possible. I really hope. Episode nine looks amazing. I'm really excited for that one. Yeah. Are you not excited for the next one? Huh. No, I hate Pete. <laughs> Fuck Pete. I'm going to depart from the crowd here. I'm still excited for Kablam. What if it uh, didn't happen? That tweet didn't happen? Would you be excited <laughs> for Kablam? <laughs> if that's what it's... Uh, yeah, it looks good, but... <laughs> like, it looks like such a McCoy run around that I can't really get excited for it. Like, I'm sure I'll enjoy it. But, like, uh, it's and like I, when you have uh, a really different episode, like Demons or like Kill the Moon, whatever comes next is going to feel like a come down, even if it's done really, really well. This might be the mummy to Kill the Moon, though. This might be a super well done, fairly traditional episode, in which case I'll enjoy it a lot, sure. But extremely skeptical of this Pete fellow now. <laughs> I, I think this episode will satisfy all the people who say that uh, series Leon is not Doctor Who anymore. Oh yeah, for sure. I yeah. totally agree. But is that a good thing? Yeah, I'm going to be very interested by how uh, much more praise I think this episode, which looks to be very season series 24-ish, very trad, is going to get in comparison to Demons. I'm sure that's only going to have anything to do with... Uh, I expected to have the highest praise, actually, yeah. because it will be just a, a refreshing for people who wanted to some casual mm-hmm. capitalism message and overthrowing governments and uh, stuff like that. People will be satisfied yeah. either way. I think the most we can kind of hope for is that each of the new writers has as distinct of their own voice as Vine did. I think that that would be ideal. Yeah. And to answer the question that I sort of um, avoided answering a, a few minutes ago, I think um, Vinay's debut it certainly kind of announced kind of his specific kind of thematic depth and his kind of his ambition to, to a bigger extent than either Dollard's or Matheson's did, certainly. So, prob- I mean, I still wouldn't necessarily say I enjoy Demons more than Mummy on the Orient Express because Mummy on the Orient Express is so kind of perfectly calibrated Whereas Demons of the Punjab is, despite all its virtues, it's still a Series 11 episode. And I think it's some of Chibnall's decisions with Series 11 kind of affect it in that way. But, I, you know, I, I think I, I have a lot of respect yeah. for Vinay as, as a writer as, as a result of this. I really hope he comes back. Oh, I was going to say I hope he comes back next year. I can't say that anymore. I really hope he comes back in two years. Is that because of the year-long hiatus? <laughs> Are you yes. a believer now? <laughs> yeah. Vinay did say he wants to do something in space for his next episode. I'd love to see that. Maybe he could use the space Indian Empire thing that Gators wrote. <laughs> oh for my Sleeping god! War. That would be great. And that wasn't that in um, Dinosaurs on the Spaceship. 
the Indian kind of space agency thing. Oh, it would be interesting if Chidden uh, brought that back. Interesting. Maybe he wasn't just uh, futuristic Earth, just or something. Wasn't it? Okay. Well. Oh, before we wrap up, one really random thing that I've noticed about this episode is that the two Thajarians in the um, script and on the cast list, they've got individual names. You know, um, I think Kiz, Kizar and Almac, even though we never hear those names yeah. in the in the episode. That was a really interesting detail, isn't it? What do you think of that? Uh, well, one was clearly a man and one was clearly a woman, just by the but, voices. Uh, no, no, both were played by uh, was a woman. women. Really? Yes, well, well, uh, both uh, voices and uh, actual playing in the costume. All were wow. women. Well, one exuded femininity, whereas the other <laughs> uh, lesser. But that's an interesting choice to just to name the aliens, even though we never find out those names. I think that there's very, it's very, very humanizing touch. I gotta say, in my head and in my notes, and from now on in the threads, I, I think of them as demons instead of the Jarians because. I really dislike the series 11. Like we said about the finale earlier, <laughs> I hate this approach to new alien names. They're so forgettable. Putting. <laughs> Renskar, Revkolor. You were saying earlier about like RTD was really good at naming aliens like the Slovene compared to the Stenza. <laughs> the Giants just doesn't have that uh, ring to it. It's a very generic name. Mm. Mm. Even Clom is just such a funny name, <laughs> but, but <laughs> yes. what, what, uh, desolation. That's not funny. That's really boring. It's just uh, an adjective describing the planet, and it's also the name of the planet. I think it's still better than random combination of letters, which is finite. Yeah. Maybe Chimno really doesn't know how to write names, and he actually is just <laughs> mashing his keyboard to come up with these. I wouldn't be surprised. Maybe that's how he writes the scripts as well. <laughs> Just one more thing. I know keep things keep occurring to me. Um, you know, uh, this episode they did the whole thing of um, telling a guest character that they're a good man, which was also done in Saranga Conundrum. Also in this episode, um, partway through, there's a brief excuse to um, deactivate the Sonic, which also happened in Saranga Conundrum. So part of this feels like a a, a re-rehearsal of things that were done in Saranga Conundrum, but doing them like just again and a bit better. Like, I feel like it's making Saranga Conundrum almost redundant with its presence. That might be totally stupid observation, but it's just something that stuck out to me. Yeah, that is weird. When Classic Who disabled the Sonic, it stuck, you know, for a long time. Yeah. Not half an episode, twice in a row. Can you imagine New Who, like, properly disabling the Sonic and Psychic Paper for, like... How long did Classic do it? It was quite a while. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah uh, um... Actually, I don't even remember when they brought it back. No, I, I, I have no idea. To the... To the McCoy had it in the TV movie. Did he have it in his seasons? Uh, I'm uh, struggling to think of a case of McCoy using it in his TV stories. It, it might have been disabled from the visitation onwards. And Nilso is going to be verging so much if we're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, nothing new there. Talking about uh, psychic paper, uh, it was using, it was used with very uh, long breaks actually, almost uh, once per series, maybe once per. Door series, wasn't it? I swear the psychic paper could have cut at least an episode out of every classic Who serial. Yeah, true. Um, speaking of just um, franchise staples, um, did you, you guys saw in the TARDIS in this episode, um, <laughs> we saw parts of it moving that we have perhaps not quite seen before. Uh, how would you guys think that the TARDIS interior is faring so far in the series? 
Could you see the bits where the top of those pillars were just kind of going up and down? I was really... That was like... Are those CGI or did they actually move? Uh, I, I think the the TARDIS set is a really different thing in this era than it was in most past New Who eras. Like, that was, that was the main set, you know, back in RTD and Moff's Who. Whereas here, most of the episodes and most of the relationship stuff doesn't happen in the TARDIS. It happens on the actual locations or back in Sheffield. So... I've kind of resigned myself to being less verged about the design because it's not a, as big of a deal. Like, if Capaldi's TARDIS was terrible, that would have been a real problem. Like, like 10% of Akil's scenes, I swear, were in the TARDIS. But here, it's so little that I try to ignore <laughs> what the TARDIS looks like. I try to go full visual big finish and close my eyes in those yeah. scenes. <laughs> but but uh, I think Storm is more fond of it uh, than I am. The TARDIS as a whole... Is it design? What do you mean? Yeah, like yeah, the design of the TARDIS. The interior. Uh, I don't think it's uh, very bad, but it's uh, significantly worse than other TARDIS mm. designs, I like. Also, did you notice that uh, Demons was the first episode when um, 13th did uh, stuff around the console, like pressing buttons and levers and stuff? It was literally the, the first scene in the series. Yeah. Uh, Ryan Reeves Smith used to do that a lot in the TARDIS, just be fiddling and spiking around uh, with it. Yeah. Like, Arvel's TARDIS console design seems slightly influenced by all those Smith scenes where there'd just be a huge bundle of wires hanging out and the Doctor would be connecting stuff, except that's now the entire means of controlling the console. Like, that's the whole thing. <laughs> I, I think Smith's first TARDIS is the clearest... Uh, influence I can see for Jodie's TARDIS, like of all the TARDISes before, like I, there's no classic one I can really see being super similar to it. What about the pillars in eight TV movie TARDIS? Those have sort of been reinterpreted for Jodie's uh, TARDIS, haven't they? Maybe, maybe. You know what would have been cool if we got the Nightshade TARDIS in an actual TV series? I don't know what the Night Side Childish looks like, so I can't comment. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, I guess no, you know, the Chibnall isn't courting an audience that has read Mark Gatiss's V&As anymore. So he's brought this <laughs> on himself. Speaking of um, the use of the TARDIS in the episode, there was, just, there was just one moment in this episode, right near the end, after all the kind of headstones for the, you know, the dead people are floating around in the Jarian ship, we do a fade which is sort of a match fade from um, their ship to the TARDIS, to the view of the TARDIS console from above. And that was maybe like the one point in this episode where I kind of was like, because eh. <laughs> you're going from this really beautiful, meaningful image straight into something. It's like straight, straight into that TARDIS design. And it's kind of like, <laughs> can it really live up to what we've just come from? It's one of those cases where... I kind of wish they would commit to de-emphasizing the TARDIS as much as they are most of the time. <laughs> yeah, this is just me whining again. It's going to be interesting, especially with the gap year. I think it's quite likely now that Talalay will do a Series 12 episode. Please. Seeing her handle the way around this TARDIS is going to be really interesting, I think. Because it's so not the type of set she loved working on. Uh, in Capaldi who so I'm really interested what different ways she'll try to film it I genuinely wonder if they'll edit bits of it 
like Matt's first TARDIS, that went through quite a few changes over, you know, five, six and seven. They, you know, they replaced bits, they added chairs, they changed the wall and, you know, they're trying to kind of make it work better. And I wonder if they'll, something similar might happen with 13s because it seems really difficult to shoot on. And, you know, they're going to, I feel like they might want to just tweak it a bit. Yeah. Uh, will they have the money? That is a good question. <laughs> Okay, well, we've been going for a while, so um, just as a wrapping up thing, how would you guys rate the episode from 1 to 10? 9. What about you, Nia? Um, that's really difficult. Uh, I guess an 8. Yeah, I was, after watching it, like, immediately after watching it, my feeling was maybe like 7, 7.5, but I'm... Based on what kind of you guys have said, uh, I'm kind of, and also a rewatch, I'm leaning closer to eight now because I do think it, it, it is, like, you know, my first watch I was like, oh, it, you know, it's got problems. <laughs> I can't believe you're rating an episode lower than me. <laughs> I'm gobsmacked here. I mean, well, that's the thing, isn't it? With the episodes that you've hated, I've been more generous to, and this episode that you love the most, I'm you know less generous to. It's just the cycle of life, you know. But yeah, no, I definitely warmed on it. Good app. Very good app. Delivery for the doctor? Something is very wrong. It's careful. I was very passionate. I was very passionate. I was very passionate. I was very passionate about it. I was very passionate. I was very passionate. I was very passionate. I was very passionate about it. I was very passionate. I was very passionate. I was very passionate. I was very passionate about it. I was very passionate. I was very passionate. I was very passionate. I was very passionate about it. I was very passionate about it not being about the politicians or, um, you know, the people doing the dividing, but what it's like to be someone affected by those decisions. I was very passionate. I was very passionate. I was very passionate. I was very passionate about it. I was very passionate. I was very passionate. I was very passionate. I was very passionate about it.